Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One podcast. This is Jason. And I'm Mark. No, no, man. No, I'm from Alabama. We are having a very special Trap One episode. We are commemorating the resignation of the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who was born in New York by having a tribute to New York City, Boris Johnson's birthplace. However, for our friends on the far right side of the political aisle, this will be a very sad reflection on the tarnished legacy of Boris Johnson. But we'll redeem him by talking about New York City, his place of birth. I, I don't. I think our listeners are too intelligent to support Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, there, there's, there's one on every ship. So <laughs> the other reason we're talking about New York, it is, of course, my birthplace. It is where I am recording from right now. But last month, I had occasion to host one of my favorite Doctor Who podcasters who uh, visited New York City. Yeah, my, my first time in New York, my first time in, in the United States of America. I uh, visited New York for a few days and had a fantastic time. And it was great to meet you in person, finally, after years of uh, podcasting together. Yes, I've known you for more than five years now. Well, first through our blogs, which goes mm-hmm. back about 10 years. And then you invited me on to one of your early trap ones in early to mid-2017. So we've been communicating long distance for over five years. And this was the first time we met face-to-face. And of course, your lovely spouse. It was a pleasure to meet her as well. Yeah, well, the whole trip was uh, was um, her gift to me for Christmas. So it was uh, it was, it was really lovely surprise. Uh, she uh, she booked a trip, and uh, along with that was the theatre tickets. Went to see Macbeth, so that was it was a fantastic trip. That was my Brooklyn neighbor Daniel Craig, formerly James Bond, who is currently wrapping up a role on Broadway in the Scottish play. Yeah, and he was absolutely brilliant. I've got to say, he was he was superb, absolutely superb. Had we time, I would have taken you past his home in Brooklyn Heights, which is only a few subway stops from me. However, the last time I had a friend in town who was here to see the Scottish play, I took them by his house. Later that night, his performance was canceled due to COVID, and I didn't want to jinx him. So <laughs> stayed away from his house. Clearly, that was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going through the start of the play. One of the, one of the cast came on stage and – just started talking and I was really convinced. I was really worried that it was going to be an announcement that Daniel Craig wasn't available and an understudy was going to step in because uh, I've never really been to a play. And what they, they just came out to describe the the setting and how the play came to be written. And, and uh, you know, it was the, the whole um, King James, the first thing about witches and to appease him, Shakespeare 
wrote a play about witches. So it was just it was just to give context to the play. But yeah, I was like, oh no, they're going to announce he's not here. <laughs> so I figured that today we will do a two-track episode. We're going to talk about all of the various Doctor Who episodes that were set in or featured New York City. And then because each of those episodes takes place in a different part of uh, the five boroughs and features different bits of architecture or geography, I figure that we can intersperse your travel anecdotes episode by episode as we go. Absolutely. Uh, on the flight to and from uh, New York, the book I was reading is, is New Yorkers by Craig Taylor. Uh, so I think I, I may mention this to you when we're there. It's, um, it's a Canadian writer who spent a couple of years living in New York and just talked to as many people as he could from as many different walks of life and jobs and areas of New York to, to, to get their stories. And some of them are very funny and some of them are moving and they're insightful and you, you learn about the history of the place. But one of the interesting things is about when someone can call themselves a New Yorker, you know, if they've moved from, from elsewhere. And I think that crops up a couple of times is you, you, you can be call yourself a New Yorker when you start saying how it's changed and it's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> and I thought that equally applies to being a Doctor Who fan. I think you can probably start to call yourself a Doctor Who fan when you start saying, well, it, it's not as good as it used to be. When you, know, when you do the whiz kid, you know, it's, <laughs> I know it's not as good as it used to be, but I'm still terribly interested. <laughs> it's, you, know, you have all these great businesses that have just been eradicated because the real estate developer will either raise the rent or demolish the building and put a high rise in its place. And it just happens over and over again. And you do have this website, Jeremiah's Forgotten New York, which is dedicated to cataloging these things. But I'd much rather have the actual businesses, not the website. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk some Doctor Who. So going in chronological order, the very first time the TARDIS lands in my city would be in episode three of The Chase in a, a segment that we call Flight Through Eternity. And I came very close to saying flight through entirety there after the podcast, but no, it's actually a flight through eternity. And this is where the doctor and Ian and Barbara and Vicky land on the observation deck of the Empire State Building. And this is – I know that in the 1990s it was, it was fashionable to beat up on this episode and kick it while it was down and talk about the fluffs and talk about – some of Richard Martin's less successful directing choices. I am an unabashed fan of the chase. I have been since I first saw it in, it must've been 1985 or 86 when Hartnell first came to PBS in the States. The guy who plays the empire state building tour guide is not American. He previously played a strangely accepted monoptera in the web planet a couple of weeks earlier. For my money, the Brooklyn accent that he gives as the Empire State Building tour guide is the best attempt that Doctor Who ever made at a Brooklyn accent. That is exactly what we sound like. <laughs> so, Mark, when you were traveling New York, how many people did you meet who sounded like that? I think they all sounded like that to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is a lost accent. It really, my, my grandmother had it. She was born in 1913, passed away in the year 2000. She still had that accent. 
she would pronounce hamburgers as hamburgers. <laughs> that accent is mostly gone. As, as you know, people die out and new generations of immigrants come in. They bring their own accents and New York City's primary accent you know, evolves and changes over time. So that gets gone. A couple of people left. Some of the old timers still have it, but you don't, you don't hear it so much anymore. But I can verify that that was the authentic accent for the day. And if you listen to Daniel Day-Lewis's character in Gangs of New York, he's doing the same accent. And I'm sure he watched The Chase as inspiration. Yeah, he's bound to have done. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's the the observation deck. Is I think was it the eighty sixth floor? I think from memory. That's uh, so that's where we went to. So uh, yeah, that was uh, I think the second day of our trip. We went to the Empire State Building. Uh, we're due to jet lag. We were up incredibly early, uh, <laughs> so we were out hitting the the city streets very early. So we got an early ticket for that, and uh, yeah, so we, we went into the building and. It's it's obviously a, a, a stunning building. It's it's absolutely beautiful. It's it's we went in obviously the touristy way, so you go through and see the. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about how the building was was constructed, um, which uh, reminds you of those photos that you see where you see the workmen who are out on a girder with no safety equipment or harnesses or anything like that, just sitting eating a sandwich, um, you know, a long way above above the city. So. All that kind of stuff, and then they do make a big deal of the movies as well that are, that have been set there. So there's a room with where there's a big montage, and it's showing you clips of movies like King Kong and Elf, and uh, I think is it Oblivion, the, um, the the Tom Cruise film that's, uh, that's briefly set there, and I think when Harry Met Sally maybe uh, maybe features it. So and uh, there's all these different screens, and they're all projecting uh, images of uh, movies and TV shows. I was waiting for a clip from the chase to appear somewhere <laughs> on this montage, um, and I looked in vain uh, as it cycled through, and the same clip started coming up again. I thought that's that's very remiss of them that they that they've missed that. I think it is fair to guess that the people who put that multimedia presentation together might not have been aware <laughs> of the chase. Um, never went to the Empire State Building. Um, it was considered for tourists, not for, not for the locals. I didn't go there for the first time until the mid to late 90s. Although I can assure you the very first thing I did was go around imitating that tour guide. So the, the gift shop has a lot of King Kong. You can buy, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of models in the Empire State Building. There's also models with King Kong hanging off it, and there's T-shirts and bits and pieces. And then uh, there's one room you can go in that has a huge King Kong uh, fist, which is, it looks as though it's smashed in from the outside of the building, where it's a photo opportunity uh, so that you can go and stand as though you've been grabbed in his fist. And then the windows are screens which show his face outside, and it's it's moving around as if he's trying to see in, and he and he's grabbed you. So we didn't we didn't do that because there was there was quite a queue for it. But I thought, ah, right, well they they've missed the chase off the the montage of uh, of, of TV shows and movies that that feature Empire State Building. But around the next corner, they'll have a little photo opportunity where you can get some photos taken with some Daleks and. Maybe the the Dalek time machine and uh, Morton Dill, so that uh, you know you can uh, if you, if you don't get your picture taken with the King Kong fist, you get your picture taken with Morton Dill and the tour guide, and recreate that scene from the chase. Maybe uh, take some black and white photos there, but they they hadn't built that either. 
That's disappointing. I mean, Morton Dill is another long-standing New York tradition of making fun of tourists with funny accents. <laughs> I know several people from Alabama. Uh, that accent either no longer exists, like the uh, tour guide accent, or was comically exaggerated in the first place. Unfortunate caricature. It is very funny, and it got it got Peter Purvis on the show. But do not yeah. take Morton Dill seriously. <laughs> Forrest Gump's Alabama, isn't he? He's, he again, I, almost <laughs> everything I know about these uh, these characters again is is from movies and stuff. But yes, but Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is certainly not from Alabama. That is another uh, cooked up movie accent, right? Because one thing that did I didn't realize was um, and, and tour in Times Square that. The Bubba Gump uh, Shrimp Company from uh, that started life in the in the movie Forrest Gump is now a chain of restaurants across America. Because when I saw it, I thought, "All oh, right, maybe that was already a restaurant," and then they incorporated that into the storyline of Forrest Gump. In, you know, in the same way that uh, he influences Elvis's dancing and and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, "Oh, maybe it already existed." Um, but uh, no, apparently it's, it's, which must be pretty unique, a chain of restaurants that was inspired by a movie. I can't think of any other examples. A now largely forgotten movie that doesn't have a whole lot of lasting cultural cachet, but uh, yeah, it's true. So they, they licensed the name from the movie. So Times Square is full of these big flagship theme restaurants and they come and go over the years. There's a huge. There was a huge Red Lobster in Times Square where the food is terrible. There's Bubba Gump and uh, Guy Fieri, the uh, celebrity TV personality, has had some some restaurants there. As a native New Yorker, we very rarely go to Times Square, and I can say that I've never eaten at Bubba Gump Shrimp, so I can't really vouch for the food either way. Yeah, it was just a surprising thing to see. Really, I'm sure that's from Forrest Gump. I think one of the bits of advice that I sent you before you came over was do not eat in Times Square every night. You have to yeah. get out and see the actual city. No, yeah, we, we definitely took that to heart, yeah. Although when I had dinner with you guys, it was in Times Square because I happen to like the barbecue restaurant Virgil's on West 44th Street. That was a good recommendation. That's the exception to my no Times Square rule. <laughs> so half of Flight Through Eternity takes place in the Empire State Building. And it's funny because the Daleks do not exterminate Morton Dill, maybe the only character that they have ever voluntarily chosen to not exterminate. My theory is they figured that he was so stupid that they wanted him present in the gene pool to delude future <laughs> generations of humanity. I think they're just in a hurry. I think once they'd established that the TARDIS had already left, they just didn't have time. They just uh, he the, the the Dalek just turns around and goes straight back into his time machine. I think it's uh, it's just because they're in hot pursuit. The other half of Flight Through Eternity takes place on the Mary Celeste. Mary Celeste operated out of Staten Island. It was a New York based ship, and that's touched on in John Peel's novelization, but it is not mentioned on screen where. All the characters, again, have British accents. So that doesn't quite count as New York. But in the next story, The Time Meddler, the original print of The Time Meddler that we got here in, in the States for PBS in the mid-'80s was missing a few scenes. And then about 10 years on, they discovered 
a missing scene from the beginning of Time Meddler, which later got added into the, into the video releases, where the Doctor and Vicky are sitting in the TARDIS console room talking about New York and how they want to go back and see more of it. And I love that scene. Uh, well, let's, let's play that now. I wonder where the TARDIS will take us next. Yes, it's done now, although I must admit I'm left with a small worry. You know, I wouldn't mind New York. I didn't get to see a lot of it, what with the Daleks and everything. Hmm? But what I saw from the top of the Empire State Building, I wouldn't mind going back there. My dear Vicky, I'm trying to talk to you. So it shows early on that New York is something that is very much on the minds of the production crew. Number one, as arguably America's most iconic city. And, of course, as a place that has a lot of storytelling opportunities. Unfortunately, it was a very long time before Doctor Who ever got back there. So you had never been to the States before at all? No, never. This, uh, yeah, this is somewhere I'd always wanted to go. Um, so, yeah, this was, uh, this was fantastic. Yeah, great, a great trip. So when Mel sprung on you the idea for a surprise trip to New York, what was on your wish? What were the things you wanted to do? What were your expectations coming into the city? Well, I think it was probably all the obvious things, like the Empire State Building. I think it was really just all the obvious touristy things that, that I already knew about the city, so the Statue of Liberty, Central Park, Times Square. I knew we were staying just off Times Square, so, so we would see that. Um, and then, uh, obviously you provided some great recommendations as well. So we went to little Italy and, uh, various places. So not part of the main doctor who canon, but one of the big finish audios, one of the first of the David Bradley first doctor adventures, the great white hurricane took place in New York in the year 1888, which was the year that my first grandparent immigrated to the u.s as as a five-year-old boy one of my grandfathers so i listened to that very eagerly and that has a good effort at picking up the styles and mannerisms and different accents of new yorkers and the various immigrant populations it was basically a mix the story of gangs of new york and west side story set against the backdrop of this enormous winter blizzard the blizzard of 88 which changed New York City forever because after that, we put all the power lines underground so a storm would never knock out the city again. Mm-hmm. And that was a very successful bit of civil engineering. Uh, I have, again, some issues with the way that audio is written and staged and some of the storylines – like the West Side Story stuff would not have happened in 1888, a different population back then. But it was an interesting attempt at getting New York right, which – Doctor Who didn't always do. Classic series, unfortunately, even after the big buildup in Time Meddler, never quite made it back to New York City. They would go to America again in The Gunfighters, which I love, but that is definitely not a New York-based story. And obviously, JNT wanted to have the American audience. He would come to conventions. He tried to have an American companion. But the show just never came back here. However, the new series rectified that almost right away. First, by giving us the new, 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 new York of New Earth in Russell T. Davis Series 2, and then Gridlock in RTD Series 3. 
Gridlock name checks a lot of actual New York locations, but of course it takes place, what, billions of years in the future, so it's all on another planet. It is not until Russell T. Davies' uh, Series 3, shortly after Gridlock, that the TARDIS does arrive in New York again, and in, in fact lands on Liberty Island, home of the Statue of Liberty, and the episode then takes place in Manhattan itself. So I was very excited for this episode when it first came out, I guess 2007. I had already moved to California by then, but I was back in New York uh, for, I think, Passover that week. So I was here in New York visiting family, and I eagerly watched the episode. And then back in California, I watched part two. Um. It's a good faith effort. Again, some of the accents are atrocious and some of the history is not quite right. But I think on the whole, it is a love letter to New York. And there's a couple of scenes in particular that highlight how much fondness the production team has for the story. Interestingly, by having a Dalek having a serious conversation about New York City with one of the human bad guys. Let's give a listen. Humankind is weak. You shelter from the dark. And yet, you have built all of this. That's progress. You gotta move with the times, you get left behind. My planet is gone. Destroyed in a great war. Yet versions of this city stand throughout history. The human race always continues. We've had wars. I've been a soldier myself. And I swore then I'd survive. No matter what. You have rare ambition. I want to run this city whatever it takes. By any means necessary. You think like a Dalek. I'll take that as a compliment. So again, uh, the actor who played Diagoras is American, not a native New Yorker. The accent is not quite right, but it really doesn't matter. I mean, accents on television are always going to be a little bit variable. But this scene immediately grabbed me when I first saw it because it speaks to me so much about why I love the city. Tellingly, when Sci-Fi Channel got the rebroadcast rights and they showed this episode on TV in the States a year later, they cut the scene out, <laughs> Right, which is unfortunate. They had some bizarre edits. What did you think of the Dalek two-parter? Yeah, I, I watched it again for this podcast, having not watched it for years and years and years. I think I probably rewatched it when Series 3 came out on DVD, which was... Uh, probably later on in 2007 or 2008 and then it's not one I, I regularly go back to it's not not really a favorite but uh, having been to New York now and inside the Empire State Building uh, there was uh, yeah there was, it was quite nice to watch and like you say there are moments like that one that really refers to the city lovingly there's a bit where it's Tallulah, isn't it? Yeah, Tallulah, because three, three L's and an H. Uh, she's, uh, she's looking down on the city from the Empire State Building, and she says, uh, well, you know, if aliens were going to come to Earth, of course they would come to New York. She doesn't know that they normally just come to the south of England. <laughs> it's, 
it's very unusual. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really nice moment, and she's looking out across the city. So yeah, there's, and I think even the Daleks say something about how what an inspiration New York is because it, it is replicated across different planets and in different times and things. Tallulah herself is an homage to the character from the British movie with a partial American cast, Bugsy Malone, which was filmed in the UK. Nominally takes place in gangster era New York or Chicago. I can't remember what it was supposed to be in the late 20s. That was Jodie Foster's character. Right. So the name served as an inspiration for Miranda Raisin's character in uh, Daleks in Manhattan. Because she she's a British actress because she's now a Sixth Doctor companion um, on the Big Finish audios. How how does her accent hold up? <sighs> Let's give a <laughs> listen, shall we? Uh, my New York based friends, you might want to cover your ears on this one. Honey, take a look. I've been on stage before. Oh, a little bit, you know, Shakespeare. Show. <laughs> right then, put him up. Hands in the air and no funny business. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna say that no, no, <laughs> no, no. Again, it's it's colorful. She's a brassy character. She embodies the soul of New York. She just doesn't embody the voice. Okay. <laughs> now, if you watch Woody Allen's Radio Days, which is set in the 1930s, there is a character who sounds kind of sort of like that. So I can see what they were going for. It's painful to my ears, but it probably sounds authentic to everyone else, which I guess is all that matters. Yeah, that, that's it, isn't it? It's, um, it, it, it's I suppose it's primarily done for british audiences and and to us it sounds like it sounds like an american accent so yeah <laughs> i remember hearing there was talk about bringing miranda raisin back to be the main companion for series four they ended up uh, getting Catherine tate instead which was a huge get but at least miranda raisin is still in universe with big finish right uh, not reprising the role of Tallulah, i take it then uh that i'm not sure on I've, I've heard various versions of the story um i don't know if she was coming back as Tallulah as somebody or as somebody else but i know they want they wanted more of her on the show it just never panned out yeah she's very good she's in a series over here called she, well, it's, it's, it's it's over now but she was in a series called spooks and uh, she was very good in that there are other characters as well. You have Andrew Garfield, who you know is, is British and is now much, much better known um, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But he had a very small part here as uh, an out-of-town uh, day laborer who comes to New York during the Depression to try and make his fortune. And then you have the Hooverville. Uh, Hoovervilles probably are best known from the Broadway musical Annie which takes place in New York during the Depression. Hoover was the president of the United States um, between 1929 and 1933. The great stock market crash in October 1929, which heralded the Depression, happened about seven or eight months into his presidency. As a Republican and on the right wing politically, it was his belief that the government should not try to regulate the economy. So he did absolutely nothing to ameliorate any of the effects of the depression. 
I will say that we have had much worse stock market crashes than the October 1929 one, and the stock market always bounces back, and it never permanently uh, does that kind of damage, unless, of course, it's a company like Enron, which, which collapses and takes thousands and thousands of employees with it. But the stock market can withstand that kind of drop. It's just that in 1929, nobody knew that. Mm. And you had all these people who had made a lot of money in the stock market bubble, and all their money was wiped out on paper. And again, it's a little more complicated than I'm making it sound, but the depression reverberated for years and years and years, and you had ridiculous unemployment rates, and it transformed America because FDR then becomes president running on the New Deal. He is elected November 1932, inaugurated March 33. The Republican Party was basically extinct at that point. Um, the Republicans were wiped out in elections along with Hoover. There were maybe 100 Republicans left in the House of Representatives and maybe about 15 Republican senators from the 1933 term. In many ways, it would be nice if we could go back to that. <laughs> I was hoping that a similar thing would happen after the disaster of the Trump presidency and the botched response to COVID and the wrecking of the economy. Instead, the Republicans gained seats in the House of Representatives, which is a sign of how much society has changed since 1932. There are no longer consequences for bad governance, I guess. But oh, I'm getting off track, aren't I? Um, I think there's more entrenched sort of tribalism now because it's the same over here as well. People treat political parties like football teams and, and just stick with them no matter what rather than uh, actually sort of look at their manifestos and their policies and, and decide who they're going to vote for. And now you have vanity news channels that tell you the news that you want to hear. So you have Fox News, you have Newsmax, you have One American News, and these are all far to the right, each one more right-wing than the previous. And there are large sections of the country who only get their news from these sources and are literally not aware of what's going on. Now, me being somewhat a little more left-leaning, I watch a lot of MSNBC, and I know that some of the stuff on MSNBC, which is our closest equivalent to a left-wing channel, not quite, some of their reporting is wishful thinking rather than actual news, but I like to think the audience can tell the difference. So that's had a profound effect on the country because you can now run on fictional platforms and there's no more incentive to tell the truth. But anyway, getting back to Hoover, there were so many homeless and destitute that they just ended up living in tent cities called Hoovervilles. The very first song in any of the musical is We'd Like to Thank You, Herbert Hoover, which I will not sing or play for copyright reasons, but do look that up as soon as you can. Very good song. So there were several Hoovervilles. The biggest one in New York was under the 59th Street Bridge, also known as the Queensboro Bridge, which goes from Manhattan uh, to Queens across the East River. Um. There was a Hooverville in Central Park. was not as big as the one that is portrayed in the Dalek episode, but for narrative simplicity, it makes more sense to have Hooverville there so the characters can look up and see the Empire State. Empire State Building is not as close to that part of Central Park as the episode would have you believe, more than a mile away. But narratively, it makes more sense. So that's where the Hooverville is. And you have the character of Solomon. I happen to like him. The script doesn't really give him the benefit of the doubt, and he's killed off in a pretty comical way in part two. Mm -hmm. But he talks about how everything is democratic and who, because everybody was somebody and is now nobody, and now they're all in it together. I think it's a very interesting 
uh, narrative point, and he would have been an interesting character had he survived. <laughs> but of course, the script contrives to kill him off comically halfway through part two. Yeah, and I think what they're, they're trying to to do with the script as well is is show that, uh, and and he articulates that, doesn't he? That the Daleks are like the people who live in Hooverville because uh, you know the doctor says, well, there was a time when one Dalek could take over the whole planet, and and these four are so depleted and and diminished that uh, you know they're skulking around and and experimenting rather than conquering the planet, sort of thing, and that uh, you know they're they're sort of uh, on their ruckus, basically, like the uh, like the poor people in, in Hooverville as well. So I watched that again uh, recently as part of my pilgrimage, probably a few mm. months ago at this point. I think part one is much better than part two. Uh, the stuff about the human dialect and the stuff about the pig slaves is not really to my personal taste. But I have a big soft spot for it because it really does right by uh, New York and mm. – Again, if I were given a pass on the script, or if anyone who's lived here for a long time was given a pass on the script, they could have changed some of the factual errors or some of the narrative conveniences. And I I certainly would have directed the accents a lot differently. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think even though it's not a great Dalek story, it is a good effort at putting Doctor Who in New York and showcasing why this city is so – you know, as the Daleks say, versions of the city exist throughout history, and this story really tries to explain why. So, I give it a, I give it at least a B plus. And as you say, that the TARDIS lands on Ellis Island uh, is, I mean, the shadow of the Empire State Building. We didn't visit Ellis Island on our trip, but we took the Staten Island ferry, obviously to Staten Island, and that takes you right by the Statue of Liberty. So. Um, all the native you know <laughs> native New Yorkers sat on the port side of the ferry and all the tourists sat on the starboard side of the ferry and took and took loads of photos and selfies and uh, and everything of the Statue of Liberty. Um, what's great about that is it's free. It just runs backwards and forwards every 15 minutes. Um, and it's uh, it's completely free. So that's uh, so that was a great thing. And uh, so yeah, we just got to Staten Island. Um, went through, <laughs> went through the sort of the arrivals straight into the departures and, uh, and got the ferry back again. Yeah, it's a beautiful day, and uh, and looking at Manhattan from from the sea as you come in, whereas it's the opening shot to Billions, which is uh, a TV show that, that we really like. I think is uh, I think it's HBO over there. Um, so uh, yeah, we sort of had that bit of music in our head as we were looking at it as well. Yeah, it's Showtime. That's based on Preet Bharara, who was a federal prosecutor who was famously fired by Donald Trump because he wouldn't take Trump's phone calls. He now has a very good left-leaning political podcast called Stay Tuned with Preet. But Billions is basically based on his attempt to take down the um, hedge fund uh, criminal mastermind or, if you will, brilliant capitalist Stephen A. Cohen – who is now – he survived that investigation. His company was taken down. He was never prosecuted personally. He is now the owner of the New York Mets, and his character was reflected on Billions, I believe. Yeah, this is uh, Bobby Axelrod, who's played by by Damien Lewis, I think. And another British actor doing a New York accent in uh, with, with Damien Lewis there. Daleks in Manhattan also – does a little bit of musical theater uh, because Tallulah's character 
like the Tallulah who performed in a speakeasy in Bugsy Malone is not a high end Broadway performer. Um, but obviously stage is one of the big elements of New York. You have the West end. We have Broadway. We are still the theatrical capital of the States. The Tony awards, which are our theatrical awards are always originating in New York. And they have some very good hosts over the years, like Neil Patrick Harris or, uh, Hugh Jackman, who I got to see on Broadway earlier this year in The Music Man, by the way, seeing Hugh Jackman on stage, he is a force of nature. But it does, I think it's the one Doctor Who story that really goes into New York City musical theater. Apart from the Scottish play, did you have a chance to see any other Broadway shows while you guys were here for the week? Yeah, we saw The Lion King as well. Uh, this was this was my wife, Mel's choice, uh, because it was her favorite movie growing up. She she knows all the songs backwards, uh, so that was uh, so that was great for her to see. And it's, it's so technically impressive with the puppets and the animals and uh, and everything like that. It is uh, it's, it's a really good production. To see, we were going to see it in Edinburgh in 2020. It was obviously cancelled due to COVID. So it was far more impressive seeing it on the stage in Broadway. Did you see any other shows or just those two? Just just those two this time. Uh, so. Daleks in Manhattan gets into that. After that, we don't come back to New York for a couple more years. But when Doctor Who returns to New York, this time they actually film the episode here. Well, at least the exteriors. And unlike Daleks in Manhattan, where only the crew came over, this time they bring over the three regulars, Matt Smith, Arthur Darvel, and Karen Gillan. Parenthetically, Karen Gillan was back in New York a few months ago for the annual Tartan Day Parade. She was the Grand Marshal. And I, we had dinner plans somewhere else. I had a very narrow window to go in and see the parade and see Karen Gillan in person. So I hopped on the subway, got halfway there. My train was taken out of service due to signal problems, and I had no way of getting into the city in time for the parade to start. So I did not get to go. Oh, One no. of my friends was there and posted several up-close photos of her in parade garb, and I am devastated that I missed that. And I hope that she comes back and is Grand Marshal of the Tartan Day Parade again, but mm-hmm. I am very upset about missing that. I tried. I tried, Karen. I, I apologize. But anyway, the, the, the cast was here. They filmed a few days. Of course, the big tragedy of my life is that I was out of town in Boston <laughs> the week that Doctor Who was here. I think it was April 2012, so I didn't have a chance to go uh, shadow the production. But it's amazing to see. You know, They're there in Times Square. They're on Broadway. They're in Central Park. They're under the Brooklyn Bridge. The big cemetery scene at the end, I had hoped, was filmed in Greenwood Cemetery, which is the big Brooklyn Cemetery, a few minutes walk. I can actually see it from my front stoop from where I live. But they actually shot that in the UK, and then they CGI'd in by composite the New York City skyline. The first time that I watched Angels Take Manhattan, I was enthralled, and I was in love, and I was at tears at the end for Amy and Rory's emotional farewell. It wasn't until I started to think about the episode and map out the geography that it all fell apart for me in a very bitter and distasteful way. But you have a different take on the story. So let's get your approach before we do all of Jason's trademark nitpicking. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I suppose the thing is there is you've got to remember that that it is only designed to be watched once for the majority of people. Um, most people aren't like us who are going back over it and nitpicking and thinking about it and <laughs> blogging and tweeting and podcasting about it. So, I yeah, I, I really really enjoyed it. Um, I know I know that your bugbear is the Statue of Liberty um, is is very rarely unobserved. Um, but it's just such a cool idea, isn't it, that the Statue of Liberty is, is a giant weeping angel. Um, I think it's, uh, it gets away with it for being just, just, just being a great idea and being a really cool visual. When my daughter started grade school in 2015, Doctor Who was just starting to fade as the big American obsession. But some of the kids some of the older kids in her school were still Doctor Who fans and some of the kids were still playing Weeping Angels on the playground. So we were taking the subway home um, early on and she was with one of her friends and her friend's older brother. And the older brother had this very involved conversation with me about the Statue of Liberty being a Weeping Angel. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, when I was this age, I would have loved to have talked Doctor Who with somebody, but it was a much more niche thing in the 1980s when I, when I was that age. Yeah. It, was, it was a very fun conversation. It's just that, as you point out, the Statue of Liberty is probably the most continuously observed object on planet Earth. The BQE, which runs along Brooklyn, plain view of the Statue of Liberty. The face of the Statue of Liberty looks out at Governor's Island, which at the time had a working military base on it. There would never be a second in the day when somebody is not looking at the Statue of Liberty. Also, the Statue of Liberty is not made of stone. It's made of metal. So how did the race that became the Weeping Angels, they all get turned into stone, except for this one that gets turned into, into copper. So <laughs> it makes no sense. It is a fun image. It is an iconic image. When you look up on the roof of your building and the snarling Statue of Liberty is leering down at you, that's awesome. It just doesn't work from any standpoint that includes the most basic realms of logic. The other point is the narrator talks about how Winter Key, which is the angels' uh, harvesting ground for, for humans, mm. is near Battery Park. However, this is shown with an establishing shot of the Chrysler Building, okay? Mm -hmm. Chrysler Building is on East 42nd Street. Battery, the Battery is the southern tip of Manhattan. It's referenced in Hamilton. Battery Park City is one of Manhattan's newest neighborhoods. It was created in the late 70s by a landfill. But Battery Park City did not exist when Angels Take Manhattan took place. And if you're living in Battery Park or the Battery, it would not be anywhere near the Chrysler Building, which several times in the episode is shown as the visual reference for Winter Key. Then you have the Statue of Liberty and the Chrysler Building in the same frame, which again is a geographic impossibility. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that bothers me, and I realize I should be enjoying the episode and getting lost in the emotional beats. I should not be focusing on this, but I just can't help myself. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I can't say I know, obviously, the geography well enough to, uh, to, to nitpick those things. But in terms of the what you said about the Statue of Liberty and the snarling face, the one piece of Doctor Who merchandise that I saw anywhere in New York 
was when we were in Little Italy, there was uh, a year-round Christmas decoration shop, um, which we don't really have here. Maybe maybe do in, in like London or something. Um, they tend to be sort of pop-up shops that, that are just here for the festive season. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit odd in July, but um, my wife was like, no, I want to have a look in here. <laughs> so we we, uh, we stepped out of the 30-degree heat into <laughs> into a Christmas shop. Uh, it's a bit like being in Australia, I suppose. Um, and, uh, yeah, the uh, among the, the huge wall of baubles was a uh, Statue of Liberty weeping angel plastic bauble with the full-on snarling vicious face uh but i i didn't buy one <laughs> i am going to have to return to little italy and i'm gonna have to buy that that sounds <laughs> awesome so just to uh do the quick translation 30 degrees centigrade or celsius would be 86 degrees fahrenheit 86 for new york in the summer is a cool breeze of a day without humidity <laughs> and heat it can often get a lot worse than that <laughs> Right, it was. It's a lot warmer than uh, well, was my part of the UK anyway at the moment. So it was. Uh, it was pretty warm for us. The opening of the Angels Take Manhattan is in Central Park, which you very kindly directed us to the southern entrance in order to find the rock that the Doctor Amy and Rory is sitting on when the Doctor's reading the book. So our plan that day, we we went in the the southern entrance and we made our way up the west side of Central Park to go to the Museum of Modern Art, and then we we're going to come back down the east side of Central Park. So we went in, and I was like, there's a rock. That's the rock that the doctor sat on. And then very shortly, we came across another rock as well that looked exact- <laughs> that looked like it could, have been, it could have been the rock. And then I couldn't convincingly say which rock it was. So I have definitely seen the rock they sat on, but I don't know which one it was. You need to get on the far side of the rock, which is down on the ravine, and look up because you can see the Essex House sign. It's a distinctive double-decker red neon sign over a whitish building. That's on 59th Street. So that sign is very prominently visible over Amy's head as she and the doctor are talking in a two-shot. That's how you would figure out which rock it is. I neglected to tell you that, I think, in my email. Right. I need to do that next time. And then because what we wanted to do on the way back was to look for the the fountain and the little bridge that Rory goes under. That's a little further up in the park. It's a little further up, but there's the fountain. Yeah, well, we we exited um, on the sort of north or the northwest corner uh, where the hotel from Home Alone 2 is. Yes. Um, which was exciting as well. Um, and then we spent so long in the Museum of Modern Art um, that we completely ran out of time to walk back through Central Park and look for the other things. So we had to get the subway um, back at that point. But slightly tenuous uh, Doctor Who connection is that Van Gogh's or Van Gogh's Starry Night <laughs> is in the Museum of Modern Art, um, which is uh, another Doctor and Amy story. Because uh, there's that bit where the line... Uh, on the ground, aren't they? And they're looking up at the sky and they can sort of see it through his eyes and it's all the, the swirly, starry night style. Um, yeah, Central Park is enormous. It goes from 59th Street on the south end all the way up to 110th Street, right? The 20 mm-hmm. city blocks is a mile. So Central Park is nearly three miles long. And then, of course, it's wide as well, cutting from the east side to the west side. 
I think the outermost jogging slash biking loop in Central Park is eight miles all the way around. So I was able to do that when I was younger, not so much anymore now that I'm pushing 50 and don't have the uh, physical stamina that I used to have. (sighs) It certainly feels much quicker walking that number of blocks through Central Park than it does Walking on the uh, walking on the pavements through uh, <laughs> through the city, it seems to uh, it seems to go much quicker. It's much more pleasant. <laughs> right, because you're not stopping every couple of minutes for a traffic light or nearly getting run over by a cab or uh, dodging. Yeah. A <laughs> it's just a straight casual stroll through a leafy tree-lined park. Then you have uh, you have the lake with the with the boats, and you have the reservoir and uh, playgrounds and lots of children, and it's very pleasant. It's it's lovely, yeah. It feels like a, a, an oasis uh, in the um, in, in the middle of the city. It's, it's really genuinely lovely, and I think the trees um, sort of blanket some of the sound as well, don't they? The traffic and, and whatnot. So it's uh, it's very peaceful. That episode also features Times Square, which we've also talked about, and mm-hmm. the Brooklyn Bridge is seen. I had recommended that you guys walk over the bridge, which is a really a fun walk. Did you have a chance to do that? No, we didn't have time for that, unfortunately. That's uh, that's on the list for next time. The last time that... Well, again, I have some issues with the plot logic in Angels Take Manhattan. And at the end of the story, they announce we can never, ever, ever come back to New York City because the city is time-locked. We can never get mm-hmm. Amy and Rory. And then Doctor Who returns to New York City two more times after that, which makes you wonder <laughs> what time lock even really means. Well, I think the the reason that he can't go back for Amy and Rory is because he reads in the book that he doesn't. So Melly, Melly, it's the whole thing uh, throughout the story is, is the book, that once it's been read, it has to happen, doesn't it? So like uh, River Song breaking her wrist, escaping from the grip of the of the weeping angel, it, it sort of sets it in 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 stone. Uh, no kind of pun intended. Oh, uh, Mark, you're a so better person than that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even mean that one. Uh, and then uh, so so he knows because he's read the the words in the book that he doesn't go back for them. So so that sets that in motion and then at the beginning of the return of dr mysterio the 12th doctor at that point is is counteracting that's what he's doing isn't it he's counteracting the time lock or the uh uh whatever's preventing him from going back when he's interrupted by the little boy he says something like uh, i've been having trouble with new york and i'm trying to fix it or i'm paraphrasing wildly there but that's that's about the size of it i think when i was putting together the format for this episode, I freely confess that I entirely forgot about Return of Dr. Mysterio, which is (laughs) interesting because if you look at the opening scene where the doctor's on the uh, skyscraper rooftop with a little boy, the little boy they cast for that scene is basically identical to what I would have looked like in 1981-1982. And I put a side-by-side up on my social media when that episode aired. It is – that is the closest I will ever get to Doctor Who landing in my home and talking to me, him talking to that <laughs> boy who was a dead ringer for what I used to look like. Um, I have only seen Doctor Mysterio that one time, and this was what? That was 2016. I can't recall a thing about it apart from that one scene with the boy who looks like I used to look. <laughs> it, well, I, I, haven't visit, I haven't rewatched it for a while, but it's a story I really enjoy. And it makes sense to set it in New York. It was 
in terms of the Marvel stable of superheroes, they're they're mo- they're mostly based in New York, aren't they? I think that was uh, that's something I was thinking of uh, because I'm not a comics fan, but I'm a huge fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you realize walking around that. Um, <laughs> That you know, I, I've heard, I've only heard of Hell's Kitchen because I know that's where Matt Murdock, who's Daredevil, lives, um, and then the uh, the pizza place that you recommended, which is Joe's Pizza on Carmine Street in the West Village. Yes. Yeah. Well, we when we got off the subway, we had to walk down Bleecker Street to to get to it, which is where Doctor Strange lives, that's and right. then. There's a big sign in the pizza place itself saying that um, that they're in the. I think I'm right in saying it's the Sam Raimi first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker. That's the pizza place that he's working for as a delivery person when he's sort of comically trying to get the uh, the pizzas there on time. Yes, Spider-Man. So it's uh, yeah. So there's loads of of this sort of stuff, um, you know, infused uh, through through our trip as well. I was thinking. When I was uh, navigating uh, everywhere using um, the Apple Maps app on my iPhone, uh, I was like, Bleecker Street, I know that name. I was like, that's from Doctor Strange, because I've only recently seen the uh, the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, so I think setting the return of Doctor Mysterio there makes total sense as well, because it is sort of synonymous with, uh, with superhero movies, isn't it? Comics is a big part of New York City's cultural heritage because the guys who founded marvel which goes back to the 30s and 40s it was originally called timely primarily the children of jewish immigrants who came here and invented superheroes as a means of coping with american society superman nowadays in the movies has been retconned to being a christ-like messiah figure but the original idea is that he was basically your standard Jewish immigrant. And Kal-El is a a Hebrew name, and that's who created Superman. Same with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, real names Stanley Lieber and Jacob Kurtzberg. Jack Kirby is from the Lower East Side. Captain America, the famous photo, is punching Hitler on the face at his uh, first issue in in the 1940s. So – Comics, superhero comics in New York come from a very specific cultural moment and a very specific population. Now, of course, they have assimilated and um, reflects the country much more broadly. But most of those comics, Marvel especially, they were set in New York. If you go back and read the original Iron Man strips from the early 60s, Tony Stark's factory is in Flushing, Queens, right across from Shea Stadium. Uh, where the New York Mets played, and uh, the World's Fair. And Fantastic Four were in the Baxter Building, which was a fictitious uh, skyscraper high-rise. Spider-Man is from Queens. Although when Andrew Garfield filmed his Spider-Man, they came to Brooklyn, and the house they used for Peter Parker's Queens home was in my neighborhood, a couple of blocks from where I'm sitting talking to you now. So yeah, you can't do Marvel without New York. And regrettably, most of the Marvel movies are filmed either in Georgia or in London at various studios. So they only do small bits of location filming here now. So Mm -hmm. it's really New York in name only. Like they did location shooting for Spider-Man No Way Home, but none of the actors came to New York to film here. Right. Ah, right. I didn't realize that. 
but uh, that's the sort of thing that I keep an eye on. As I'm sitting there in the theater, everyone else is loving it. And I'm sitting, wait a minute, that's not New York. <laughs> but uh, again, Mar- Marvel is a New York institution, and the earlier movies, like the, the, the original Spider-Man, um, the Sam Raimi ones and the, the Mark Webb ones, were filmed at least in part here. So we'll, we'll always have that. There's uh, Paul Mars. Uh, recently uh, on the podcast, we talked about Hornet's Nest, uh, which is the the fourth Doctor audios before he signed with Big Finish. Um, but one of the later runs of that, I can't remember if it's Serpent's Crest or, or Demon Quest, there's a story that pays homage to that New York superhero scene as well. I can't quite remember what the story's called, but uh, I will check and put it in the show notes. I am going to be seeing Dr. Mysterio again. My pilgrimage right now is in between Listen and Time Heist. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Mysterio was Capaldi's second Christmas special. So I'm probably about two or three weeks weeks away from watching that. I am looking forward to seeing it. I remember enjoying it, especially because (laughs) the kid in it looked like me. (laughs) I gather it's not the most beloved Christmas special, but I enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to seeing it a second time to see if it holds up. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's quite uh, it's quite a throwaway one, I think. But I think where it landed, it was it was the first episode since the previous Christmas special. It was the year when there was no series at all that was broadcast, so it doesn't. I think it's it's sort of a I can't remember which came first. Did the Husbands of River Song come before or after it? But it has Harmony Shoal, which is the same the same villain. I think maybe that was the previous Christmas special. Then there was no series that year. And then, then we had that. So we've got the same villain in it, but other than that, it doesn't have any. Uh, it doesn't have really a lot of. Um, yeah, it must be. It must be after the husbands, of, the husbands of River Song, because it's got Nardole in it, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think there's no. There's no sort of ongoing plot points. So it's just a nice sort of seasonal special that uh, you know anyone can more or less just tune into and enjoy. Um, I remember finding it, yeah, kind of funny and fun and uh, yeah, good, uh, good special. Husbands of River Song was 2015 and Mysterio was 16. So you're right. right. It's funny when you're watching the new series in a nightly pilgrimage because all of a sudden it's Christmas every two weeks. Yeah. And in the case of those stories, it's Christmas two nights in a row, followed by about 10 days of episodes, followed by a third <laughs> Christmas special, the uh, Twice Upon a Time. Maybe I'll time my visit to that Christmas-themed store in Little Italy with my next Christmas special, which is coming up in a few more days. Yes, <laughs> I have. Uh, I have the. Um, I have Last Christmas coming up pretty soon because I'm already about halfway through season, through series eight. So that's one of my favorite Capaldi Christmas special. I think I love that one. That's another one I've only seen once and I don't remember. But Doctor Mysterio, I guess, takes place in the world of New York City skyscrapers. The other than Empire State Building, what other touristy things did you do? We've talked about Staten Island Ferry, talked about Broadway, talked about um, Empire State. What did you do in terms of uh, museums, iconic New York City museums? So we, we already did the Museum of Modern Art this time. What our, our plan is, is to come back in the winter because my wife wants to see the the big Christmas tree uh, in Rockefeller Plaza 
and uh, and go ice skating. And then we thought we would probably, because uh, we understand that the winters are very, very cold, that we would do more indoor things on our next trip and, and see more museums and art galleries. Uh, so, yeah, it was only the Museum of Movement of, of Modern Art, really, which was, uh, yeah, it was huge and, and very impressive and lots of very famous. I don't know much about art, but there's so many famous pieces of art in there. So they had Dali's Persistence of Memory, which is the really famous, the melted clocks on the landscape. Oh, yeah. Um, Matisse, is it? Matisse's Water Lilies. There was... Uh, a number of paintings by Picasso, uh, and as I mentioned before, the Starry Night by Van Gogh. So yeah, it was it was fantastic, fantastic place to uh, to look around. But yeah, we definitely want to do more of the cultural side of things next time. But the, maybe the only other famous sort of landmark we we went into Grand Central Station. Oh yes, uh, that wasn't too far from where we were, and and that's just a beautiful, beautiful building. Um, really feels like it's from another time uh completely it's uh it's it's yeah it's just stunning um so uh yeah like 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 other places we're sort of uh tourists who are standing looking around in awe while busy commuters were <laughs> were, were, were just flying past us and not even noticing it anymore <laughs> there's the people who stand up gawping at the ceiling and the folks who run who dodge between them trying to get to their yeah. tracks <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah we were the uh we were the morton dills who were uh, just standing slack jawed <laughs> Um, I also would, of course, highly recommend the American Museum of Natural History, which is on the west side of Central Park. Right across the street from that is the New York, New hyphen York, the way the city used to be called, Historical Society, which has a lot of stuff related to the famous Hamilton bird duel. And then, of course, on the other side, on the east side of the park, you have the Guggenheim, which is a modern art museum, uh, you know, with, with the spiral descending all the way down or walking all the way up, depending on how you approach it. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has a ton of classic paintings and sculptures and an Egyptian wing and an actual Cleopatra's Needle uh, in Central Park directly behind the museum. And there's one in London and one in New York. We stole them from the Egyptians in the 19th century. <laughs> Cultural appropriation, but it's still there. It's fun to look at. Well, I, we felt like the other thing that you've stolen from the Egyptians, uh, because what we were saying is the only other place where people love to um, beep the horns on their cars as often as um, as we experienced in New York was when we were in Egypt. It's <laughs> <laughs> this kind of constant cacophony um, background noise of people uh, people hitting their uh, their horns all the time. <laughs> if you are at a red light and you are the first car in the queue and you don't floor it as soon as the light turns green you will get honked <laughs> at by every single my wife is not immune to this her hand is surgically attached to the horn she <laughs> honks the horn in the car as frequently as i breathe <laughs> and she was born in new jersey but she came here for college and never left and she is now a full-on absolute new yorker so she <laughs> definitely takes that honking the horn thing to heart I'm a little more timid about using it, but if you're ever in traffic and you hear a honk, it might well be my wife honking at you <laughs> for walking, for crossing the street too slow. <laughs> yeah, well, we were mainly pedestrians, but we were sort of thinking, why are you beeping your horn like, like the cats in front of you can't move? <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even hear it anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but definitely, definitely a fun part of New York City life. Uh, amb ambulance sirens and horns honking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
the last time that Doctor Who came here would have been in Jodie Whittaker's uh, second season, Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. Now, I recorded – I was not on that Trap One episode. I had um, claimed Spyfall Part 2. So you had a different panel on. I think Conrad was on that, maybe a couple of others. But I recorded a five-minute review of the use of New York City in Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. Mm-hmm. And I made that a multimedia presentation with audio clips from Silver Nemesis and The Chase and some of the less convincing American accents in the Tesla episode. The two main points that I raised in that, number one, Tesla's Tesla had a few different offices in New York City, but the one they were probably thinking of was the one on Houston Street in Manhattan, which runs through Lower East Side all the way through the West Village up to the Hudson River. The aerial shot of the street where Tesla had his office geographically that shot could only exist in Brooklyn because you can see the Statue of Liberty on the left side of the screen and also the Statue of Liberty is the wrong color everyone thinks the Statue of Liberty is green was green and always has been green not the case it was co- it's copper so it was originally a red copper colored statue it was a beacon in the harbor it started to oxidize and turn green after about 20 years. And by 1920, it was fully green, and it has remained that way to this day. But if you're looking at New York City in 1901, the Statue of Liberty should still have been copper-colored. So they either didn't know that or it was too much effort. So they just composited in the Statue of Liberty now when both my grandfathers came here, 1888 and 1903, the Statue of Liberty still would have been red, copper-colored. So they would have seen the Statue of Liberty as it was meant to be seen and not the oxidized green version that you see now. So that was not a major problem. I mean you're not going to say an episode is bad because they got the color of a background prop wrong. Mm. But just it's something that I noticed. Um, so other than that though – Tesla was inseparable from New York, spent the bulk of his life here, died here living in the New Yorker Hotel, which still stands, still exists. I have been in the hotel. I have tried to stay in the room. Um, It's always obviously a a popular thing to book, so I've never actually been in. But you can stand out in the hallway and look at the room, and they have like all sorts of photos of Tesla on the door. And he lived in this two-room suite for years, and that's where he was found after he passed away. There's a plaque on the side of the hotel commemorating Tesla. And I think I sent you photos of that as part mm-hmm. of the show notes for your Tesla episode. So if you go back into the Trap One archives, you can certainly see all that. Yeah, I'm sure we saw some some places named after him as well. Is there a, is there a street named after him or – a lot of street corners uh, in the city have been renamed. So I think 42nd Street, where he sat and fed the pigeons, has been renamed Tesla Way. Right. Yeah, that must be what we saw. But he lived on the the Hotel New Yorker is 34th and 8th. That's where he that's where he lived. And right. Unfortunately, died. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Houston Street there, which uh, in your really, really helpful uh, notes that you sent is, is spelt in such a way that you would imagine it was pronounced Houston, as in um, 
um, Whitney Houston or Houston, Texas. Um, <laughs> but you, uh, you, you very kindly um, <laughs> showed us phonetically that we should pronounce it Houston, so that if we're asking for directions, uh, we wouldn't get a sarcastic answer from uh, from any New Yorkers. <laughs> that is one of the things that separates the visitors from the natives. If anybody asks you, uh, do you can you tell me how to get how to get to Houston Street? They clearly don't know their way around. Um, <laughs> so, Houston Street is named for William Houston, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, except he wasn't a New Yorker. He was from Georgia. And his name was actually spelled with two N's, H-O-U-S-T-O-N-N. When they named the street after him, they misspelled it. Right. But that's why it's pronounced Houston and not Houston. So it looks like it's Houston Street, but it's actually Houston. And I sent you to two great New York institutions. There's Katz's Deli, which is where a very famous scene from When Harry Met Sally was filmed. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end of that is the West Village. So Joe's Pizza on Carmine Street is right off Houston, uh, a couple of blocks to the north. We did those on separate days. Um, Katz's Deli, yeah, absolutely fantastic. It felt felt very authentic it's very uh, very bustling and everything like that they uh they just get you in sit you down but the food was food was fantastic we had the pastrami sandwich and the the soup forgot the name of the soup that you recommended the matzo ball soup yes yeah so that was uh, that was great um and yeah the the walls um are covered with uh with uh, various uh, famous people that have uh, that have eaten there as well, so so that was quite cool to see. One of them was Daniel Craig. Ah, um, oh, so yes. He was uh, he sort of um, had a scarf like very tightly wrapped around the bottom half of his face, and then a, a baseball cap pulled quite low. So uh, it shows uh, it shows showed what he looks like when he makes his way around the city. I think so as not to be recognised. I, I saw two people who I definitely recognized but but couldn't place. Um, one of them, I, I, I know that I'll, um, I'll, I'll see him on something and, and immediately be like, that's that guy. He was cycling um, along Broadway uh, one afternoon, and I, I know his face, and it's, I must have seen him on, in, in a few different things. And then another place we went, Essa Bagel. Oh, yes. um, breakfast one morning. There was another really familiar-looking guy. He was British, but I'm convinced he was an actor because he was flamboyantly dressed with a bow tie, and um, and he also had a personal assistant who was going to the counter and doing the ordering um, and everything for him. Uh, but I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't place him. But again, I will see him in a movie, I'm sure, in the next kind of year or so, um, and immediately go. Of course, of course, that's who it is. But in in the in the moment and afterwards, I, I can't quite place who they were. Uh, but we did see Daniel Craig not not only on stage, but leaving the theater after the performance. As we were filing out of the theater, we noticed that they put barricades up out of another exit to uh, to a big SUV, and people started to gather round. So we thought, well, this must be where Daniel Craig comes out. So we said, well. We wanted to go for a drink after the play. We said, "Well, if we'll give him five minutes and uh, and, and see if he comes out." And uh, and sure enough, he, he came out very quickly afterwards. So I got a little video of him uh, coming out and waving to the crowds. And then he, as he pulled away, obviously because it's uh, it's it's Broadway and then into Times Square, traffic doesn't move very quickly. So people were following alongside the car <laughs> that, that he was in. 
And I said, well, when that's, we're not going to do that. We're not going to pester the guy. He's, yeah, um, he's, uh, he just wants to get home. Uh, uh, and then um, he wound the window down and started handing out signed programs um, or playbills, do you call them? Playbills, uh, yeah. Some, yeah, so, so we, we would say program from, from the play. And I was like, oh, no, we should have <laughs> we should have gone and walked alongside his car. But it just seemed, uh, just seemed so kind of borderline, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, a nuisance uh, to, to do that, that, uh, that we didn't do it. In uh, 1997, when I was home on break from law school, I took my kid sister to see Titanic the Musical, which was uh, on Broadway at the time. Not a great play, but my sister memorized the entire score. But playing a few blocks down from Titanic the Musical was Rent, which was the Hamilton of its day. And... Rent was La Boheme, and the playwright, Jonathan Larson, died like the night before previews. I never actually got to see his play take off, but it was an enormous uh, sensation. And it turned its cast into overnight stars. So Adina Menzel, who went to my high school a couple of years ahead of me, she was in Rent, made her a huge star. And then, of course, came uh, Frozen and Wicked, and now she's, you know, as big as it gets. Um, Anthony Rapp, who is now Stamets in Star Trek Discovery, was also one of the original cast members in Rent. So after Titanic let out, my sister had already seen Rent twice by then and was a complete obsessive. She wanted to go by the stage door and see Anthony Rapp and get his autograph. Thousands of kids standing by the stage door. Anthony Rapp comes out, signs an autograph for my sister. She had her camera. She was too scared to ask to get a photo with him. And as we're walking down the street back to Penn Station, she is loudly berating herself that she didn't ask to get a photo with Anthony Rapp, who at this moment she loves more than anything else in the world. So this is the most stereotypical, arrogant, nasty, jerk New Yorker thing that I've ever done. I turned my sister around. We storm back to the Nederlander. Anthony Rapp is still there signing autographs. Next thing I know, I am barking orders at Anthony Rapp. My sister's your biggest fan. She's terrified to talk to you. She wants a picture. Can I get a picture? And he shrugs, nods his head, puts his arm around her. Her face is beet red in embarrassment. She's got a photo with Anthony Rapp. I say, thank you, and I walk away. <laughs> I still feel bad about that to this day. Um, on the off chance that Stamets is listening to this Doctor Who podcast, Anthony Rapp, I'm sorry. <laughs> this was 25 years ago now. Um, I'm otherwise not really a big autograph or stage door person, but there is an art to it, and there are people who do it all the time, and they, they know how to get it done and how to how to speak to the artists. Do not do what the Jason in 1997 did to Anthony Rapp, please. That is not cool. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, I like um, – Tesla, it's one of my it's, – it's in my top third of Jodie Whittaker stories. I have not – I watched it twice that week, and I haven't seen it since. That will be coming up again in my pilgrimage soon. Mm-hmm. But again, it, that has a really bad bit of geographic dyslexia because part of it takes place out on Shoreham, on, on Long Island in Shoreham, which later on had a nuclear power plant, probably about 70, 80 miles east of New York City. There's this really confusing moment where somebody is in Manhattan, opens a door, walks through, and they're suddenly at Tesla's factory on eastern Long Island, 70 miles away. 
we don't know how that is possible. It's I, I don't know if the people producing it didn't realize that New York City and Eastern Long Island are two entirely different places that are not actually next door to each other, or what happened. So they're both real. Tesla had factories in both places, but you can't get from one to the other by opening a door. Right. <laughs> But that is one of the more infamous bits of getting New York City wrong. But again, you have the effort. You have Tesla. Uh, you, you have uh, was it Robert Glenister uh, coming back? He was Salatine comes back to Doctor Who to play a historically accurate, uh, grumpy and greedy and arrogant uh, Thomas Edison. So that was a lot of fun performances. Not not a great episode, but it's a good episode. Enjoyable, fun. That's really all you can ask for. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Good. I remember enjoying that one. I don't think any of it's actually filmed in New York, though, is it? I think uh, no, not not at all, no, not at all. But of course, the, but at that point, the budget is uh, starting to go south, and you can travel to parts of Europe easily. But getting to New York probably would have been more of a production than they could have afforded at that point. For all of his faults, Chibnall is a terrific line producer who was able to make the show during a pandemic and, and make it look good visually. So if New York were in his budget, he certainly would do it. I just think – I don't think it's feasible right now. Mm-hmm. And now that the pound is, is relatively low compared to the dollar, compared to where it's been in the past, the, the, the pound is not going to stretch as far as it would have in years past either. No. Well, he apparently did have a little bounce when uh, when Johnson announced uh, uh, announced that he was going to resign. <laughs> I think a lot of things had a bounce when Johnson announced he was going to resign. <laughs> but he he was born in New York City, so he is considered a native son of this borough. Yeah, there you go. Maybe he's eligible to run for president. <laughs> Fortunately, not only do you have to be naturally born, but there's also a 14-year residency requirement. So he would not be eligible to stand for president until... 2036 at that point he'd be in his mid seven. so let's hope that doesn't happen that's that's the average age at the moment isn't it (laughs) (laughs) to to wear out your welcome in one country is misfortune to wear out your welcome in two countries is carelessness (laughs) yeah you've already already had one you don't want another (laughs) with the same hairstyle so what are your closing thoughts on your visit to New York and Doctor Who's various efforts to come to my city? Well, I think the city is absolutely fantastic. I loved how vibrant and amazing and diverse it was, uh, especially coming from where I do, which is a relatively rural uh, place in the north of England. It was, uh, yeah, it was very, very exciting and amazing. And uh, yeah, I, I did spend a lot of the time thinking about uh, the Doctor Who's that were set there, and and as I say, and, and the MCU uh, to some extent as well. So yeah, I couldn't I couldn't not stand on the observation deck of the Empire State Building and and get a photo next to one of the uh, the you know those telescope um, things that are, that are built in, yes. and uh, not think of uh, of poor Morton Dill. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I always think of the. Uh, tour guide with with his um with his distinctive accent and all the various strange other people on the tour like the woman with that remarkable hat that the camera is always tracking around <laughs> yeah yeah now that i've got a camera phone so I, I didn't need to get my camera over my elaborate feathered hat yeah <laughs> did somebody come up to you and ask you if you had seen somebody who had been on the observation deck a minute ago and you pulled a morton dill and went they just left 
<laughs> no, the, sadly, there was there was no opportunity to do that. Yeah, the um, the the other guy on that tour looks a bit like Sheriff J W Pepper. I always think from oh, yeah. the uh, from the two Roger Moore, um, the it's a man with a golden gun and live and let die. Live and let die. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a similar build and dress sense. I think. Yeah, the racist uh, Southern uh, sheriff is a very popular trope in American movies. Uh, Jackie Gleason, who is a native-born Brooklynite, very famous in the U.S. for almost inventing the sitcom with the Honeymooners, he later played the uh, Southern sheriff uh, Buford T. Justice in the Smokey and the Bandit movies. Right. Oh, yeah, he, did yeah. a, he did a pretty good job of suppressing his native uh, Brooklyn accent for those films. Right. With Burt Reynolds as the, as as the bandit and Jackie Gleason as Smokey. I haven't seen them for a long time, but yeah, I've seen those. But we uh, are kind of getting uh, pretty far afield of our episode <laughs> topic here, and again, yeah. we're at least I'm wearing out the audience. <laughs> so I think we will say um, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Trap One Podcast. You can find all of our back catalogs at trap1.podbean.com, and you can also catch us on um, your podcatcher of choice. Mark can be found on Twitter at? At Quark McMullis. And I can be found on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's DR Who Novels. You can also catch my weekly podcast, Doctor Who Literature, which is available on Anchor and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and many other fine podcast providers. Uh, Mark has been on that show three times, and he will be having a fourth appearance very, very soon. So if not for me, check that out for Mark. Can't wait to come back. Good night, everybody. Goodbye. (laughs) 